welcome to our Friday Five Live podcast hosted by Meg Foster. Meg has spent 20 years in higher education focused on student success initiatives and working in areas such as orientation, faculty development, online learning, student leadership, and first-year initiatives. Happy Friday, everybody. We are excited that it is Friday at our house in June, and we are absolutely thrilled to be joined today um, by LaTanya LT, Reese Miles, who's going to talk to us about addressing students' stopout. Um, I do want to give a shout out. We've got a couple of upcoming webinars, which I think really speak to um, kind of the conversation we're going to have today um, around this idea of um, belonging and also first-generation students. So um, check out some additional dates in June um, that we've got coming up. Um, Friday Five Live, we're live now. We're going to be uh, on all podcast stations. So great way to share it. I like to think that we pair nicely with a cup of tea or a good walk around the block, maybe with a colleague or some coffee. So um, today we are thrilled to be joined, um, as I mentioned by LaTanya, she is the Director of University Partnerships at ReUp Education, um, a first-generation college student herself, a former stopout student with an awesome story I know she's going to share with us. Um, she's worked at a variety of different higher ed institutions, including most recently Menlo College. Um, and I really do wish we could dive into a Friday Night Lights discussion, um, but I think we're going to have to hold off on that one um, for our next, that'll be our next conversation. Um, but we are just so grateful uh, that you are here with us today. Meg, thank you so much. Yeah, I think we got a whole series planned, right? We, we've got a whole number of topics. Yeah, and I got my, I got my tea right here. Awesome, awesome. Well, we, um, as always, I prepare some questions, um, but we love to hear from um, our audience too. So don't hesitate, put your questions in the chat. Um, if you have best practices, resources you want us to know about, um, and we will make sure that we weave those um, into our conversation. So to kind of kick us off, you know, we're, we're talking today about supporting students um, so that they don't leave our institutions. And I, um, this is, I think such an important conversation in the context of, you know, what we see, I feel like every day there are at least three articles about enrollment trends in higher education, right? Um, and as you and I've talked about, I'm very keenly attuned to the students that are not finishing at our institutions, I'm real worried about particularly um, um, black male students who we're not seeing enroll, we're not seeing finish, um, and in some uh, in other populations. So, to kick us off, would love to hear from you. How did you come to this work? Because I know I think you just have a fascinating story to share. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Thank you for reaching out. So, first, I'm going to talk about the professional side, and then I'll dip into the personal. Um, as as already mentioned, I do a lot of work already specifically serving first-gen students, um, adult learners, and other sorts of like what we might consider post-traditional types of students. So that that's really been my wheelhouse, both in terms of as a faculty member and then someone who's done a lot of work administratively uh, and student success on a, on a national on a national level. One of the things that I'm really Motivate, motivated by is this idea of hidden curriculum, right? And so that's the things that we folks are expected to know, um, whether it's rules or behaviors or policies, but aren't taught explicitly. And I think that concept is 
what dovetails actually um, intersects um, with this topic of stop out students. And, and I'll come back to that. So been doing so all that to say on a professional level, just been really invested in the support of those particular populations. It so happened I identify with many of those uh, those particular student populations. So I myself was first gen, would have been considered, now I know would have been considered like a post-traditional student. I was a transfer student. And like you said, Meg, I also stopped out and I stopped out involuntarily. And I think those, that's important to think about too, right? Um, so it wasn't that I felt like I needed to take a leave of absence or anything like that. So for me, it was um, a matter of not understanding how financial aid worked. And, uh, and in my case, I owed a bill at my one of my institutions and was, was being told repeatedly that I could not apply current financial aid to a past bill. Sure. That's all I knew. It was said it was as though I understood it. Like, <laughs> It was said to me, but I didn't get it. And, and then I was actually evicted from my residence hall. Mm-hmm. So I had to stop out, worked, got married, and made my way back to a four-year school, but not the place where I started. Mm-hmm. So all that to say, this is this topic is very personal to me as well. And I feel like in some ways I'm trying to like support little Latanya. Well, I wasn't that little, but younger Latanya, um, and what what I what I needed at the time. Mm-hmm. An amazing, I mean, story, and and this concept of a hidden curriculum. I'm, I mean, there are, you know, those of us who, I mean, I have a father who's a college administrator who did not fill out a FAFSA form because he didn't understand how to do that, and you think. You're somebody who works in the system and you could ask for help, right? Like right. much less somebody who these are words and language that that they don't know um, yeah. because they haven't had exposure to it. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny you bring that up. Oftentimes, first gen students who, um, you know, end up enrolling are the go to people often in their family. Right. And so they've they've been able to figure out how to get into college and being being confronted with something that you are unfamiliar with puts you in a really uncomfortable mm-hmm. position, because if you're the one who's able to figure it out, then who are you going to go to? Right? right. I think people right. sometimes overlook that part. No, I think that's a really important insight into to this population of students. So as we think about this picture about students who are stopping out. And, you know, we, again, going back to the, oh, the that enrollment data that keeps getting pumped out um, in our higher education news sources. I, you know, I, what, what it was 39 million, it's increased by a million um, yeah. in the last year of um, students who are some college, no degree. In the work that you're doing, what what barriers are you seeing? Whether those are, and I'm, I, and I should have clarified this. I'm curious because I think they're institutional barriers, right? That right. we don't realize that are there. But then there, there are barriers outside of our institutions too that are really preventing students from being able to stay enrolled and finish that degree um, or that credential because it's just so it's so important and, and um, that we do this work. 
Yeah, um, I, I appreciate your distinction because I had done something something similar as I was conceptualizing mm -hmm. an answer. Um, and yes, Kim, I'm going to address what Kim has written in the chat too because I think what happens a lot of times, Meg and everyone, is that um, that institutions are thinking about individual students and individual situations, which are important, but it um, it also lets institutions off the hook because. Mm -hmm. Honestly, many of these barriers are systemic, structural, and institutional. So systemic, structural, and institutional. The other thing I'll open with too is that um, we all know that the the pandemic um, has only exacerbated and highlighted things that already existed. So, so for example, um, of course, some of the barriers right now are about mental health, right? Um, and students also juggling a lot of responsibilities. I will, honestly, before the pandemic, when I have spoken to institutions, I would really stress that our students are not, often not students first. That doesn't mean they don't value their education, but it does mean that they may have other responsibilities, right? Mm -hmm. And while um, they want to earn their degree or their credential, oftentimes being um, either a caregiver or a good daughter, good son, an employee, those things come first. And okay. so some, like I said, some of the barriers have to do with having some of these additional responsibilities and then institutions not having the flexibility <laughs> to address that. And the other thing I'll add is that <clears throat> I, we didn't talk about it quite this way, but the, the perception that obtaining a degree within either two or four years, I would argue is a barrier as well. This very notion that you have to complete in two years if you're at a community college or four years if you're at a, a bachelor BA granting institution can also honestly contribute to mental health concerns, right? Mm -hmm. um, and students feeling, internalizing that, um, not feeling a sense of belonging, all these things really matter. And then the last thing, and in case other folks wanna chime in or you wanna respond to, there's also an unclear pathway to return. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so um, if you want to step out, what how do you how do you get back? And so institutions, I know I know we're gonna dive into what some possible responses can be, but I do want to lay it out there that many, many students are unsure. Many some things are are changing fair somewhat quickly. Or it's just not clear what the pathway is. A lot of this is once again hidden. Or you could say, "Oh, it's on our website." Where is it on your website? We don't know. <laughs> uh, it's buried four pages back. If you it's understand what a registrar is, and you, you know, know what that's the web, the the person whose website you would go to. Registrar? Are they the cousin of the bursar? We don't know. <laughs> right. Shall we quote a little Hamilton? That's one of my favorite lines. So I love the way that you said that two year, four year, we, we have these, you're supposed to complete a four year degree in four years. You're supposed to complete a two year degree in two years. But you and I have also sat at the tables where 
we're being judged institutionally, right? As a leadership team, you're supposed to have X percent of retention. You need to graduate X percent of students in six years time so that that will count and you're being evaluated as an institution by that. So to step back from that, that's, I don't know, maybe it's me. I think that's kind of radical to, to, to lean into that reality. Lean into it. Yeah. Well, cause so listen, mate, what's happening now, and this is a, I'm a little bit into the work of what I'm doing at REAP, but I'll, I'll elaborate later. What we see in light of um, what we call en- enrollment cliffs, in other words, mm-hmm. um, that that traditional demographic of students around 18 years old coming out of high school, um, people are really over-indexing on that population because they want to, you know, show gains with that six-year graduation rate. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, if a student has stopped out, you know, five years ago, they, they're they're not. Um, uh, they don't become a priority for the institution anymore, uh-huh. right? So they were in your class, but now all of a sudden they're not in the cohort that you want to show um, right. has, have retained. And so then they just get farther and farther out. But so what happens to them? Who's who's reaching out to them, right? Um, uh-huh. So the answer is not going to be bring in more high school students. That is not going to, right. to that demographic um, is, is really decreasing, generally speaking. And so there's so many folks, you mentioned already, 40 million people who have stopped out and we need to honor the promise we made to those people. Mm-hmm. 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 That gives me goosebumps. All right. And, and I, and this idea of these unclear, and I know we're going to get back to this, unclear path to return. I think about all of the students I have taught. I mean, and I've taught thousands of them at this point in, in my, in, and, they, and it breaks my heart when they leave, right? It, it always does. Um, but to say, you know, we're here with you. We're not going anywhere when yeah. it's the right time to come back. Right. Know that here's the easy to find. A process by which you're going to do that, um, that would be powerful. Okay. So if you could offer one piece of advice to institutional leadership teams mm-hmm. about how we are able to shift our systems, adapt systems, create systems to prevent students from stopping now, what would that be? No yeah. pressure. <laughs> Is somebody going to give me my million dollar check after I give this answer? Um, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I don't think that the, the, the thought is how do you prevent students from stopping out? Because okay. of all the things I said before, right? Because there's so many things that are external, like mental health. I mean, we need to think about how institutions themselves are creating problems. So in light of that, I, what I would say and where I've seen some best practices emerge is when institutions realize that they are part of a larger ecosystem that a student is involved in. So that's a different way of addressing the solution is thinking of um, you are part of like the industry of the community. And so working together with, with the um working together with those other touch points that a student may have will actually go a long way. So when I think about 
so when I think about Compton College, for example, down in, in SoCal, um, it, it does not have a strong retention rate, but what President Keith Curry has done is sort of recognize that Compton College exists within a community. And so they've really focused on basic needs. They focus on dual enrollment. You know, they're, they're looking not just, not just um, a student coming to class, but um, like the, the whole environment of a student so that um, the student, it's kind of like wraparound services. I, I get it. I get it. Not not every institution thinks this way, but this is why two year institutions matter, and we don't talk enough about them because <laughs> because because yeah. community colleges are just much more adaptable and much more attuned to this. And I'll also uplift our regional public institutions. They do they do a, a much better job at understanding a student's whole environment. Um, and again, it doesn't prevent stopout from happening, but however, you will likely see often higher senses, sense of belonging and inclusion, okay. just more flexibility in terms of curricula, in terms of when you can return to school, do you have to wait the whole year? You know, all oh. those types of things are, are um, some examples of best practices that I've seen on a national level. So readjusting some of those things like policies where it's, oh, you yeah. know, you have to, and I know there's been a lot of national discussion about, um, uh, you know, withholding transcripts from students for non-payment. I know Connecticut's working on, I think, getting rid of that. Um, I know Virginia's done some of that work. It didn't get past this past General Assembly, but maybe next year. Um, you know, it's funny you bring that up because that's actually part, I didn't say it, but that was part of my story too. So when I mentioned having stopped out, I I was evicted when I was a junior, <laughs> right? And mm -hmm. so um, right before finals, it's, it's, it's just wow. kind of tragic to be honest. Um, so right before finals, I was evicted and, uh, you know, I had put in a lot of credits at that institution. And so... I, my goal was, to, well, I wanted to return because I love that institution, but I also wanted to return because that's where the majority of my academic work had been done. And so if I were to transfer, I would have had to start almost over again. Um, I got lucky, Meg. So it just so happens that I was able to transfer with an unofficial transcript, right? I just, there was some uh, intervention for me at the place where I ended up graduating, but it shouldn't come down to that. It shouldn't come down to like divine intervention in order for that to happen. So right. yeah, so I'm glad you brought up like legislation, um, but all kinds of things go into why a student stops out and why it's difficult for them to return. And notice how very little of it is about academics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think about um, in my early days of my career, um, I was working in Hampton Roads, which is, you know, home of the world's largest Navy base. And I mean, I would have a, adult students roll in with 10 and 12 transcripts, right? Because they had yes. moved all over and they have been able to take a semester here and a semester there. And, 
and, and, and I was fortunate to work in an institution that really wanted to honor that as part of degree completion. Mm -hmm. um, but these are conversations we continue to need to have in, their, in our systems. Um, and I think there's a lot of great work being done around, you know, two-year to four-year transfer within states. Um, and and I'm, I'm, you know, pleased to see that in the news a lot, pleased to see organizations um, are really working on those sorts of initiatives to make that transfer process more smooth. But when we also think about, I think the term you used is post-traditional student, mm -hmm. um, which is one I want to hold on to. Yeah, they may be, I mean, as somebody said, as you said, like being a student may not be their first priority, right? So, and they may not have had the, the uh, you know, life happens, right? And so you may not be able to stay in one place for four to six years. Yeah. Wrap up that you, know, you know, there's a lot of tension um, as you're aware, like I'm very um, attuned and I write about media and, and pop culture, but there's a lot of um, tension between who we represent as being a college student versus who's actually in our institutions right now. And if you were just to watch TV shows, um, like a, a typical TV show or um, read a, a, a go grab a book about someone who went to college, it's usually a four-year institution, usually private, often Ivy League. That is the, such a small percentage of people actually in college. Most people are folks who are working and balancing um, all kinds of responsibilities and jobs and things like that. That is who is actually in, in our institutions. And so we, once again, have to just be <laughs> thoughtful about who it is that we're serving and not this sort of ideal it's not even ideal. It's it's just it's just been a long replicated um, uh, version. Uh, uh, yeah, of of who is who's at our school. So they, I love Sex Lives of College Girls. Like I binge that, but that's that's not that's not um, a really common college experience right now at all. Most people are like Southwestern Missouri. You know what I mean? Or <laughs> there, or Virginia Piedmont. That that's that's who are, that's who our typical. That, that's who are in who is in American universities right now. Mm -hmm. That's a really good distinction because um, I was just watching Gilmore Girls with our oldest yeah. the other night, you know, and Rory's off at Yale. And, and we kind of laughed. I was like, well, this is not how college really works. But, it's <laughs> um, you know, and yeah, um, forget the big boyfriend with like you know, jet set around the world. Right. Um, <laughs> But that's such a good point that we're not seeing these representations for lots of reasons um, mm -hmm. about who really, and, and I, I know some of, that some of your work really talks about capturing these narratives. I mean, that's so, it's, it's so important. Um, I, I loved some research that was shared this week coming out of, I think, isn't it Stanford that's doing the PERTS, P-E-R-T-S program I haven't heard anyway, of that one. And it's it's uh, done. They've done some research around you know giving these giving entering students narratives from older students, where they're talking mm -hmm. about you know making those connections and understanding that it's not going to be you just don't walk in and it's easy, right? Like yeah. That and and it might be a struggle, but you can do this because I overcame these things and you're going to overcome. And that that's, that, that's important, right? Mm -hmm. And and golly day, you know the research shows those students 
felt more connected, felt like they belonged, were more successful. (laughs) So I think that work that you're doing around capturing these narratives is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, and that's something that, that kind of leads me into this next question. That's something we can all do. Does that Mm -hmm. make, because I I know um, sometimes our listening audience, we, we may not be the folks who are sitting at the the leadership table where we get to say, oh, well, let's let's redesign. Um, I know my institution is doing so much important work around being student ready, you know, student ready mm-hmm. campus. Um, and we may not be able to impact those kind of larger institutional changes, but there's something each of us can do, you know, in our various space, spaces that we are um, around supporting our students. And so would love your thoughts about what's something that that I can do in my role as an FYE instructor or somebody can do in their role as an advisor. Can, can I just say how much I love this question? Because I do think oftentimes we may, those of us doing this work may feel a little bit overwhelmed and sometimes are feeling frustrated. Um, I think just like uh, Kim was saying in, in the chat right now. So uh, so thank, thank you for this question because I, I too would like, like to think about how we might all feel empowered, no matter what work we do. Um, I'll, I'll use I'll use a couple of examples. One, um, those of you who are interested may want to check out a book that I co-edited about campus service workers and the critical role that they play in um, forming allyship with students and increasing their sense of belonging. And I know this because of my own personal experience when I transferred the first time. Meg, I didn't talk to a single advisor. I talked to the custodian in my building. So he knew what was going on with me um, and no one, <laughs> no one else knew. And so I think we need to be paying attention to who our students are connected with. Mm-hmm. So that will include facilities workers, housekeepers, dining hall staff. Um, they, I just, wanna, I just wanna elevate the important work that they mm-hmm. do because oftentimes they are the first ones to know what's going on with a student. Um, the other thing I just wanted to say, just generally speaking, is that we should all be listening to our students. And I see a lot of policies coming out that are um, often just top-down approaches without sort of student involvement, students on the committee. So if you all are focusing on stop out students or any other kind of topic, I would just make sure that you have a student, <laughs> students involved on that committee. Um, you may have to offer some virtual options. They may not be able to come in, but actually ask them, ask them what, what would, um, what does the support look like? What would they like to see happening? What are the pitfalls? Have them give you some feedback on your website. Um, I, I've just find students, um, students just have, like much better ideas than I do. So, <laughs> um, and then also talking to community leaders. If, if again, not 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 to put I, I not not to put extra work on anyone, but you may want to find out who else students are connected to outside of outside of your institution. Sure. May you know you brought up something I want to bring. I hadn't even thought about this. So until you mentioned sort of narratives and, and reclaiming. My, um, I, I just want to uplift uh, Brianna Taylor and her story. 
we often, I think it's known that Brianna Taylor was, you know, had a certificate, certified EMT. What's not known about Brianna Taylor is she started off at the University of Kentucky, um, four-year institution. She stopped out. She went back home after one year and started working and um, apparently was like saving up money. She was a first-gen student and, you know, took a couple of community colleges here and there. And her goal was to come back. But she is the type of student we're talking about, right? Sure. And we, and a lot of that is not known about her. And so I would argue that she's very representative of what we're dis discussing, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's tragic what happened to her. But one of the questions we're really asking is how do we retain a, a Brianna Taylor who had goals, who had, um, um, you know, a, um, a desire to be a, a healthcare professional and was trying to figure this out the best way that she could. So that's one of the projects that I'm working on. It's like filling in the gaps of her narrative more so that we can know. And what, why did she leave University of Kentucky? That's a, that's a question right there. Mm -hmm. well, thank you for sharing that. Because I do, there's such power in these narratives. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I know we're, often at large institutions, right? Where there, there are a lot of students and it's easy to kind of uh, paint a false narrative, I think sometimes about, yeah. about, about who our students are. And then, cause we need to see, you know, oh, it's thousands, it's overwhelming, right? It's so many, um, many students. So I, I wanna circle back that we should all be listening to our students. I, I think if there is one theme that we have held on to in this podcast for the last three years, it has been, and this comes up in almost every conversation I've had, that the work we're doing has to include the voices of our students. Mm -hmm. um, and because it, it just won't work otherwise. I mean, I know that that is very simplistic, but um, but so I appreciate you reminding us of the importance of that, um, of saying, how are we including our current students in evaluating policies or developing resources? What we know, um, I mean, statistics do tell us that um, first generation students, I think if you're first gen and low income, you know, I think only 11% graduate in six years, right? So you're more likely to um, not continue if you're first gen and low income. However, I do want to say we also don't want to make assumptions about students if we're trying to predict. So for me, I was an honor student. <laughs> I had a 3.8 GPA and had to stop out. Um, my my daughter is a current stopout student. She was at an art institute, right? For very different reasons. My husband um, had stopped out and for him it was financial and he ended up joining the military and it was like a really long and windy journey back. And my mom was a stopout student as well. So again, very different reasons. So when you're reaching out to students, make sure that you know it's a heterogeneous population of students 
um, and getting making sure you're you know getting getting feedback, especially from some populations that may be um, really non-dominant, right? I mean, you don't want <laughs> don't I don't I don't want to have like like the Olympics of of, of all this, but you know, okay. like some, like you mentioned, male students, for example, um, if if you know of some students who are LGBT. <laughs> Um, veterans, just making sure there's, if possible, some diversity in that population, undocumented students, et cetera. Right. So that we're capturing mm-hmm. our student voices. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Do you know of any best practice? I'm curious because I'm thinking about who might be listening. And, um, you know, I know that one of the things we struggle with in the community college is that students just kind of evaporate, right? Like there isn't like a formal ability to do an exit interview. Why are you, I mean, I'm sure some institutions, but I'm curious, do you have any schools that you've worked with that that are, are kind of helping to capture that? What is your narrative and why are you leaving so that we can continue to, to touch base? Does, I'm probably asking something that's I, crazy. No, no, no. I, and I wish I did. I, but when you asked about like a, a model institution, El Camino College comes to mind because they have a really strong FYE program. Mm-hmm. So I think if you if uh, institution embedded some of this work into the curriculum, right? Mm-hmm. So that way you might be able to not ask them why are they leaving, but just get a sense of what they're thinking you know, in real time, and you might be able to probably do some early, early alerts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, El Camino College, um, honestly, <laughs> ironically, a sister campus of Compton College, they they just, they just come to mind. I, I would imagine Amarillo College in Texas is probably doing really good work along this, along this line too. Yeah, interesting. Um, it, because so many of us are doing so much work around these early alert programs and how are we capturing data and how does that tie in in that attempt to prevent a stop right. out. But, right. but I appreciate, I'm, um, you know, trying to think differently around that concept because I really came at this conversation with, okay, you got to prevent it. And, and, and you're making me really think very differently about mm-hmm. what does all of that mean? So thank you. Um, yeah. All right, so you're now working with ReUp, which is an organization doing super cool things. And um, in our power, we'll, we'll link all of this out um, for our listening audience. You've got um, uh, access to ReUp's website there. Kind of tell us about the work that you're, you're doing, that this organization is doing, and then that you're doing within the organization. Yeah, so ReUp is a third-party organization, and our uh, we have a really um, laser focus on adult learners who are stopped out. Like that's all we do. That's all we focus on. And we work specifically with two-year institutions and four, uh, this is ideally a four-year public regional, insti- um, four-year public regional institution, because that's where a lot of adult learners are. And that's where you find a lot of people have stopped out. We mm-hmm. know that what it takes to bring a student back is challenging, right? A lot of these students are hard to find (laughs) and hard to support. The other thing, Meg, too, is if you do nothing, right? So let's say a student makes their way back. 
the odds of them actually continuing are very low. So they just need support, not just to return, but support all the way through graduation because there was a reason why they left, right? And it's not like those things magically went away. They need some some way back. So REUP helps students with the hidden curriculum part of returning and then also provides the support for them all the way through graduation. We do that with human beings, student success coaches, and that allows us, well, student success coaching along with data analytics and along with um, some technology, which allows the institution to scale up. Because this is this is a really challenging thing. You just can't go to a current advising staff or current enrollment management staff and say, in addition to what you're currently you're doing for current students, also reach out to people who've left 10 years ago. That that's a lot to ask, especially right now. So with that kind of third party support, it really allows institutions to to reach students mm-hmm. that they haven't been able to touch. And we do that uh, pay for performance model, which means that there are no upfront costs. And so we only get paid, so to speak, when a student returns. So no matter how long it takes. So Meg, let's say you stopped out and I'm talking to you and not me personally, it's not my role, but a student success coach is just checking in with you and it takes you two years to come back. That's, we understand that. So we know it's a long game, but we really understand who the population is. And we only reach out to students who are interested in wanting to return. So my my role is university partnership. So I'm the one talking to the um, the VPs of enrollment management <laughs> who, are, who are interested in this work. But I think what makes a difference is also students having human beings that they can talk to and, and just support them, right? It's about life coaching. It's not about academic advising. It's just like, hey, what's going on? What's going on in your life? Um, is this realistic for you? You know, setting goals, that, that, that type of thing. I can see how that might tie in nicely too. to, you know, I know a first year experience, right, is geared towards often a first time in college student, but there's some cool stuff going on in that kind of area where you are, you know, this just feels very much like what I do with my, my, my FYE students. Sometimes, and those are often in a community college class, people who have come back after That's a break. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and we talk a lot about setting goals. Yeah. And, you know, my, my mom, I, I mentioned my mom also had, my, I, I was the first in my family to go to college and my mom, shout out to her, went back in her 40s. But she she said it was such a struggle. And she says, I she, she said, I don't know how anyone after high school makes their way to college. Like if you didn't go directly from co- from high school to college, how do you figure all those things out, right? Like almost like what you're saying, where's your FYE community when you're not that traditional freshman? Mm-hmm. And those are, that, that's, that's what it's going to take. Otherwise, otherwise the gap just continues to widen, right? The equity is not there. And like I said at the beginning, we don't do what we said we were going to do for those people when they first, when they, when they first were in our institutions. 
Yeah, it makes me think about what would it be like to be at an institution where when you first came, we signed a contract together, organization to student to say, you know, here, here's what is expected of you as a student, right? Yeah. yeah. Because I feel like that's part of that hidden curriculum. I love it. And then it's our promise to you. Right. That's right. Now I want to go find that institution and work there. Oh yeah. Well, we'll, it'll be the Latanya and Meg um, University. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be great guys. Yeah. Everybody's going to come. We are. It it doesn't matter if it takes you eight years to finish your degree. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, but we're here (laughs) to support you. But, and that's, you know, that's been another theme that we have seen kind of running through our conversations. Um, uh, we, we've kind of laughed that it feels like belonging has been like reinvented as the word of higher education for 2023. Um, you know, it's like brand new. Um, um, but we also know there's a lot of valid research around students who feel connected in our institutions, you know, are, are more likely to be successful. I mean, Vincent Tinto did that work a long time ago. So um, this these are important I, I think it's important to remember we don't have to, we're not reinventing the wheel. We know, we know these things. It's, yeah. it's kind of getting back to the basics in a way. It, um, it, it, it really is. And by the way, it looks like uh, Kim Shelton is joining us in this, she, in, in this oh, university. So love it. Fantastic. I love this. Love this. Well, we have just a few more minutes. So any parting words of advice or wisdom for us? You know, I, I feel like the summer is always a time where hopefully we can replug and kind of renew and reinvigorate because um, I know the academic years certainly take it out of us. But I also know that cyclically we're often kind of in the summer in a time of planning and preparation and anticipation. Um, so man, let me tell you, I wrote down at a certain point in our conversation, I was like, oh man, here's my takeaway. Um, kind of unplanned. Meg and I didn't talk about this, but tell different stories, right? That's my takeaway is tell different stories. And you mentioned like the power of narrative and that's just really staying with me in my head. But when you think about it, the narratives that we tell drive what it is that we do. It drives the data that we look for, that drives the policies that we create, And we really need to step back and ask ourselves, what stories are we telling about these students? So we've been talking about stop out students. I think typically the story is, um, you know, these students are struggling. They may be having some, yeah, they're probably having some financial difficulty or they're having some academic difficulty. And when they're ready, they're going to come back. Now, if that's the narrative, look at all the policies that come about in place because that's the story that we're telling. Mm-hmm. That it's about individual students, they're academically struggling. So all you that's the things that you see put in place, as opposed to a systemic issue that <laughs> involves more than just that institution. Um, that students are not students want to be in school, but they have other priorities as well. So then, if we focused on that, then that would change the way that we are supporting them as well. So we would have. Um, different ways of, 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 of uh, uh, accepting prior learning, like you said, mm-hmm. to options when it comes to credentials, not just putting everything online, but 
how are we putting it online? So yes, tell different stories. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. Thank you so much, Latanya. This has been, I could, we could just talk for hours. I I love the idea of the series. series. Yeah. (laughs) And and sign me up for the university. Uh, (laughs) You're you're a founder. (laughs) I hope that um, folks will listen to past episodes. I feel like there's these wonderful and important themes that I'm really hearing emerge. We're going to spend some time this summer looking more into enrollment. Um, We're going to look at the crystal ball of enrollment. Um, I'm hoping that we're going to get to have some conversations um, to this summer around, uh, in case you're not aware, the Supreme Court's going to make some decisions here about affirmative mm-hmm. action in college admissions. And I think that's a really important conversation um, for us to have. So um, I, I kind of feel like it's going to be the summer of continued enrollment conversations. But I think those are important ones we need to have, especially as we're thinking about, you know, this lens of equity and access. And, and we need to be looking at our work through that lens. So um, thank you so much, Latanya, sharing with LinkedIn, email. Um, I hope everybody has a great weekend. I hope there is time for rest and renewal um, wherever you are, whatever the temperature may be, wherever you are. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Latanya, for your time today. Take care, everybody. See you next month. Friday Five Live is brought to you by Innovative Educators. Innovative Educators offers six online services for your onboarding support and training needs. Visit us at innovativeeducators.org to see how we can support your student success initiatives.